Welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. This week, we are giving you another look at Connor Grennan, storytelling, volunteering, and progressive heroism. We are re-releasing this to you because recently, Connor won NYU Stern's 2018 Administrator of the Year Award. In addition to the amazing work he does at NYU Stern, we want you to know about the amazing work he does in Nepal and his career as an accomplished author. Connor Grennan is a New York Times and international best-selling author of the book Little Princes, One Man's Promise to Bring Home the Lost Children of Nepal. He is also the founder of Next Generation Nepal, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing trafficked children home to their families. His experiences are a well-documented example of doing well by doing good, a stern mantra. He has so much to teach us about business, life, passion, and following your heart. Also, Connor has some amazing paradigm-shifting views on volunteering and nonprofits that I think you will enjoy. Uh, what do you like most about Connor's about Connor's episode? How genuine he is. He is somebody who's done extraordinary things but couldn't be more down to earth. Yeah. Also, when he talks about volunteering, it's a it's a perspective I've never heard before, which is that you don't have to be a hero. You don't have to start as a hero. Like you maybe slowly get there, but you can have your own purposes in mind when you start it. But the people you're helping, they don't care. They just want help. I think that's cool. Yeah, and I think that he also takes a really lighthearted approach to his work and uh, the student life. You know, it's not it's not all serious, and I really like that. He he gives a lot of levity to the student experience. Yeah, I'm really I'm really excited that we're re-releasing this episode. Actually, him winning Administrator of the Year is just like an opportunity for us to re-release it. But I've always this has always been one of my favorites, honestly. Absolutely, and this is actually just a week after our one year anniversary of our first release of this episode. That's so right. It couldn't be it couldn't come in a more timely time. Yeah, couldn't come in a more timely time, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> this is our one-year anniversary for Stern Chats. No better way to celebrate than to have Connor Grannon on the podcast. What do you think? Should we start the show? Let's start the show, Frank. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Thank you so much for coming, Connor. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really cool what you're doing. Thank yeah, you. just for like a radio audience, a hypothetical radio audience, would you mind just introducing yourself to them? Sure, yeah. My name is Connor Grennan. I'm the Dean of MBA Students here at NYU Stern, and uh, I was also a student here, and I've been here for about uh, three years now, coming up on April 1st, 2017 will be exactly three years. Never start a job on April 1st, by the way. That's a different story. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weren't sure if it was for real or not. Yeah. Well, I thought it was for real, and... Uh, and then in the end, um, HR decided to pull a prank on me, which was just not funny Oh, that's at all. not even fair, yeah. I, you would think it would not be fair. I fell on the side of it not being fair. But oh, they, no. They thought it was hilarious, yeah. And, and what was this prank? Well, so it was, you know, when you get into any job, and I had already spent two years as a full-time student here, so I knew the place. I was pretty comfortable here, but still, anytime you go into a new place, you feel a little bit apprehensive. And, uh, and it was kind of coming up on sort of the middle of the day, and I got a call from HR, and they said, listen, we have a few people here. We just want to get your take on this. We know you're new. Students apparently bought um, a thousand um, NYU Stern branded uh, tree blankets. Oh, good. And yeah. yeah, and they were thinking about putting them up all around the city. You know, what do you think? Is this sort of something where we should, you know, really be investing in more tree blankets? Or and I'm just I'm there in my office, my door's closed, and I'm rubbing a hole in my forehead, just thinking, how do I answer? Because this sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever oh, seen. Yeah. But but I didn't know how to say that, so. It's my. It's, the, yeah. it's like hour four. And like, do I squelch their enthusiasm? Exactly. Do I protect the budget? This was the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I, there was a long pause. I'm like, you know, I would probably want to talk to. And then you hear them just laughing, and I'm like, really? Oh, Perfect. No. HR. Yeah. That's why people in my office make fun of me all the time. But like, if I have like five minutes to talk, I'll do four minutes of just completely goofing around, just to make sure that people are like. 
with me. And then the last like 30 seconds will be like, by the way. You're fired. Yeah, that's right. yeah exactly. Yeah. By the way, you know, the Office of Student Engagement is on the sixth floor. You should really visit. You know what I mean? But anything, but any, because if you start off like, the Office of Student Engagement is located on the sixth floor. You know, they're, they're, they're gone. They hear yeah. Charlie Brown's teacher. That's you it. know, wow, you're, wow, you're wow, basically wow. teaching us marketing 101, by the oh, way. Interesting. <laughs> yes. You're just a human cartoon it's, of marketing. You're, you're exactly packaging it. information in the prettiest, most oh, interesting yeah. package yes. with a nice little bow on top. But, that, but that's the funny thing about like, it's only stories. Like people remember stories, they hear things in stories and everything else. And this is why when, you know, in the New York Times, the reason why I don't read those stories about incredible things happening all over the world is because it's not a story. It's just like anything that you can tell in the form of the story. Like people will just, it just, it gets sticky and people remember it and everything else. But this is why I love what you guys are doing because you can kind of go on and we could do a podcast every week about like why Stern is great. But it's radically different from saying like, hey, here's one of our students. And this is just like, this is a person that is reflecting Stern, you know? You got it. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. That was exactly what we did. It's been, I mean, as a writer, you probably understand that better than most people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just from that, and it's you know, it, the, I mean, it is completely evidenced by the fact that we have this small um, cause out in Nepal, which is a country that people are kind of interested in generally, but but nobody nobody's from there. It's not really a big geopolitical thing, and it's kids, and it's not even like big sex trafficking kind of thing. It's just a very small thing, and yet the story is compelling enough. Or I shouldn't, you know what I'm saying here. Like, it's just like, because I was able to like write a story, we have gotten people, because I wouldn't even like sit through an article on that in New York Times, and yet we've gotten people to read like 300 pages about the details of that. And it's purely that, and when people kind of come back to me with that, it's very few people are coming back and saying like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. I mean, sometimes they are, but for the most part, it's like, gosh, the kids are just amazing. Because it's like, it's just that. For people that haven't read the book, and by the way, they should, yes, because it's agreed. exquisite. <laughs> um, can you talk about the situation in Nepal? And you, and you started a um, nonprofit called Next Generation Nepal, and can you talk about that as well? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the overall story was just that I, you know, I ended up getting out there in, I think, 2006 or something like that, and... Um, I discovered the situation when I was out there. And so the situation was this. There was a civil war going on in Nepal from 1996 to 2006. And essentially there was the king against kind of the Maoist rebels, and the Maoist rebels essentially controlled the entire country. Nepal is obviously a very remote place, but within the country it's even more remote. Um, Again, my favorite statistic from Nepal is that 80% of goods in Nepal are transported by foot because there's just no roads. There's no anything, right? So, I mean, of course there are in the city center and in some of the that paint, that's one stat paints a pretty good picture of the you know, situation. It's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, because it's it just shows you that for a vast swath of the country, there's just no roads. I mean, the only way to get things to and from is just to carry things and uh, over the hills. So, so what I found out there was that um, it, this was sort of something that I think really. I'm not saying we discovered it, but certainly on the international nonprofit scene, our organ, our tiny organization discovered it, which was that there were all these kids that were in orphanages. And when I was there, I was working in one of these orphanages, and the assumption was that just, you know, from the Civil War, you know, um, you know, children had lost their parents. And it kind of made sense because the mouse essentially controlled the entire country except really for the Kathmandu Valley, Kathmandu being the capital of Nepal and sort of the, the kind of the, the city and the surrounding environments. And that was really surrounded by, uh, that was really controlled by the, the royal army and the king. And the mouse had taken over because everybody just kind of sided with them. They thought, wow, this king is incredibly wealthy. We're trying just to sort of feed our kids, and there's no police force here. Why don't we just overthrow the king and have, you know, kind of a communist sort of system, which sort of makes sense if you're starving yeah. and, you know, and you see one, the sort of center of power have so much uh, money and influence. So it sort of made sense that this war was going on. But what we had was a, a children's home out there that you know we were kind of working in, assuming all the parents are dead. And then one day, this mother shows up and says, those are two of my kids that you have here. And we're like, what are you talking about? And it turned out that what was actually happening was that parents were um, desperate to save their kids from getting um, sort of absconded into the uh, rebel army, right? And so the way they would do this, the way they would sort of like prevent their kid from getting taken by the army was this guy would come through the village and say, I can take your child from this village into 
Kathmandu, where it's safe, where it's protected, where they can get an education, and then they'll come back in 10 years or something. And so parents were overjoyed at this, and parents basically gave up everything to have that opportunity. They sold their house, they sold their land, they sold everything they had, uh, and they went into debt and everything in order to pay this man to take their child. To save their children. Exactly. They're trying to save them. Exactly. There are child, I mean, when people think of child trafficking, you can think of all different kinds of things. One of the things people think of is people selling their kids into prostitution. This is the opposite. This is parents really sacrificing to save one of their children. That's usually all they could afford. And so what they didn't realize, of course, was this man was a child trafficker. He just took the kids. And when you take a child from one of these remote villages in the Himalaya to Kathmandu, it's like the other side of the moon. I mean, they, they, you know, there's no roads or anything like that. Like, And especially in the city, there's... It's like just sort of saying, like, hey, find, and I show you a picture of one human being, and find them in New York City, and you can't use the internet or something. Like, how are you supposed to <laughs> find that person, right? So that's kind of what we're dealing with. So so this is what was happening with um, all these orphanages. It turned out that there were, I thought there was just only sort of a small handful of these fake kind of orphanages or orphans. It turns out there's thousands and thousands. It's like 15,000, 16,000 kids. They actually estimate that 60% of orphans in Nepal are not actually orphans. In fact, they actually shut down adoption from the country because they realized all these kids were actually trafficked and not orphans. And, you know, because the traffickers would take them and then they would make money either on the front end from the parents or they would make money by selling them into domestic slavery, which is very common. Or they found out when there was adoption that adoption agencies, it's obviously very expensive to adopt a child from, you know, any place, really, $20,000, $25,000. And the parents or future parents would be making a donation to the orphanage where they would be taking the child, which kind of makes sense. You're sure. kind of taking cut and you're, you're helping the orphanage. But what they found was that, wow, actually, if all these kids were, and I'm making air quotes here, orphans, then we actually, every child here is kind of worth $5,000, you know, because this is, that's the size of the donation. So they started just making fake you know, death certificates for the parents and letting these kids go off and get adopted. So I actually know kids, like even in New York City, that went through this. There's documentaries about it. So anyway, so all of a sudden, before this is the average annual salary, like $500, you know, a year, and all of a sudden they're making $5,000 per child. It's insane amounts of money. So they quickly cut, shut down adoption from Nepal. And then now, actually, the way the traffickers are making money is that they are setting up these, again, fake orphanages, just grabbing kids from the village, bringing them in. And then when volunteers come through, you say, oh, my gosh, look at this impoverished orphanage. And they say, yes, you know, we really need your help. And you start donating like $1,000 a month that you're raising from all your friends. And now these traffickers are making tons of money every month. So this is like an insane. So this is why we've actually written a lot of reports kind of almost against volunteering in Nepal, which is sort of ironic because the whole way that this organization we started right. started was from me volunteering in an orphanage in Nepal. So anyway, so that's kind of where we are today, right? I mean, the, again, the war ended in 2006. We started this organization, and the organization really what we do is we rescue kids from children's homes, uh, illegal children's homes, and we go out and send teams out into the mountains to find the families of these kids and try to reunite them with their families right away. Yeah. Oh, that you know that's that's a tough story to hear. Yeah, you know, I think it's crazy. It's, not, it's nothing that we have ever experienced. You know, I just the no. I I don't even know. You look what, very upset, Sherry. No, I just I don't even know what resources. I mean, okay, they don't have roads. They don't have iPhones with Google Maps. Yeah, like, we, I don't. We couldn't find dough if it wasn't on our Google Maps. I couldn't find UC one twenty. <laughs> no, I couldn't find this room without yeah. calling Frank. I just, I, I don't. I, that's that's a real. That's story. true. Yeah, yeah she called um, me. To find the no, room. I I just you know the the resourcefulness that you and the volunteers must muster not only within yourself but also you know, with the collective communities in Nepal is just, must be incredible. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's it's funny because you make so many mistakes along the way, obviously. But um, so one of the things we learned was that, you know, here we are and we just celebrated 10 years of this organization. And yet there are some things that we haven't really been able to, I don't want to say improve. I mean, um, shorten the, t- the length of meaning like when you go out and you find a family we're much better at it because our network out in the mountains is probably wider and all that kind of stuff but but you still actually have to put on a backpack and go find those families and so there are some things that we are better at now which is you know we always carry satellite phones things like that so when we find the parent um you know, we can kind of call back and make sure it's the right parent. The parents can talk to their kids right away. So when I was doing oh, that's it, nice, yeah. it was like I would find the parent, and then it would be weeks before the child knew that I had found their 
transparent, you know, which is kind of a strange thing. Um, we now, it seems dumb, but we now obviously have digital cameras. But when I was doing this, it was, it's not that it was the early days of digital cameras, but like our local teams wouldn't necessarily have digital cameras. And you think, what else, what other kind is there? But they were going out and they were um, looking for, for example, they were, they were looking for this one family. And they found the family and everything else, but they had one, uh, there was one kid in the orphanage that we had no information on. And that's because the way that we get information on where the kids are from are from the kids, right? So, But if you ask like a three-year-old, you know, what's the name of your mom? They're going to say, mom, you know, they don't know. Like, what's the name of your dad? Dad, like, where do you live? Like, Nepal? Like, well, you know, so that's <laughs> what's Nepal? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they don't, they can't, whereas you ask like a 12-year-old, they're like, here's my family name. Here's my, you know, this, this right. is the village where we're from. Here's some people that you can talk to, all that kind of stuff, and you can get them home. So anyway, so this team that, uh, you know, that we, one of our kind of search teams was out in the mountains, and they're walking back, back to Kathmandu, because you have to walk everywhere. And they go off in the mountains for weeks. You know, they go off for like, you know, four to six weeks or something like that, just searching. And so they, they got to this one village. They were coming through this one village, and they started realizing that everybody in the village kind of looked a little like this little girl, Sushila. And, uh, and you know, we had no information, and so they started to ask around. They're like, you know, do you know this girl? There's this girl that kind of probably disappeared like three years ago. She's probably four years old or something like that now. And and trying to gather some information. But this happens so much that it wasn't like, oh, the girl that disappeared. You know what I mean? Like there right. was there was many of them. So so they were trying to gather information. They realized they didn't have a picture of her. And so they actually had to walk back to Kathmandu, go into the office, like open the drawer, like pick it up and be like, Ugh. and then they walk back. <laughs> it was like to, a Polaroid. Yeah, sorry, that's, like, oh that's what it was. Take like a Polaroid. They get back there and they're like, Please tell me. And they're like, yeah, they're like okay, uh, I guess we'll back. Yes. <laughs> and they walk back. But we, I think, I just saw this statistic yesterday, actually. I think we've found now or reunited something like 577 kids or something like that. That's and the, that is incredible. That's incredible. It's crazy, right? And yeah. so, and it's really crazy to me to know that each one of those kids is, was really hard to do. You know what I mean? It's not like you bring 40 kids back and then you're you know, in a bus. You know, there's no bus. There's no bus. <laughs> one bus and yes. a, a cheerful <laughs> bus driver right. and chocolates for everybody. <laughs> That's the yeah. idea, right? You get them as close to the mountains as you can and then they, then they walk for like nine days and you hope that they're going to the right place. So you had a New York Times bestseller, you know, which is incredible. You know, what a wonderful like resume item. But we actually heard that you don't even love the title of your own book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So um, so here's the thing. So the title of the book is, uh, and I think, I think I'm getting this right, Little Prince is One Man's uh, Promise to Bring Home the Lost Children of Nepal. Yep. I think that's right. And, it's, uh, <laughs> and I don't even mean to be funny about that. That's, um, it just, it's, I always kind of get it a little bit wrong. And it's because the Little Princes is named after uh, an orphanage in Nepal, a children's home in Nepal. And the story is really a memoir of my time in Nepal, um, sort of a few years that I spent over there traveling on a lark and just sort of as, um, you know, again, probably as a lark is the best way to say it, just volunteering. And then I kind of fell into this work and I ended up um, volunteering at a children's home and starting, a, starting an organization out there. But the thing I didn't like about the title one whatever one man's thing is that <laughs> little princess is fine that makes sense it was the working title of the book it's named after the orphanage and but then it just sounds so serious it's what i get for christmas all the time ever since working in nonprofit which i've done most of my life i always get people always give me books with subtitles like that like one man's and as soon as i just see like one man's i'm like i'm not i'm not <laughs> reading this and so because it feels like one of those subtitles where you just feel like um you know, the author is just like this person that just always wanted to save the world and then they did and, you know, you're reading this book and you're just feeling terrible about yourself and it's not yeah. inspiring as much as it is just guilt-tripping, nonsensical awfulness that you have <laughs> to plow through in order sure. to kind of get through it and then to tell people that you read it. And so I was um, adamantly against the subtitle, but... And I really wanted something kind of goofy and everything else. And they're like, you don't understand. This is this is how these books sell. They don't sell that way. You know, they sell with these kinds of subtitles. And so in the end, I had to, uh, you know, sort of give it up to the marketing department at, at the publisher, which is HarperCollins, and, and let them do it. And they were, you know, they're right. I actually yeah. don't know what I'm talking about with any of this stuff. Sure, but they write the checks anyway. They write the checks. Yeah. It was their book at that point. They had bought it. And so, um, so my sort of like the one caveat was, you know, 
as long as the tone inside stayed the same, and the tone inside is sort of like fairly light and goofy when you're talking about Traffic Kids, but that's sort of where that title came from. I was about to say, I mean, how much control do you actually have over the title of your best-selling novel? You know, it's more, I think, that you can say what you really, really don't want. So, like, they, their original cover for the book uh, was, I think, a picture of me and a bunch of kids... Uh, you know, one of the photographs. And so I saw that. I'm like, this is horrible. It looks like, um, again, one of these, like nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who the kids are. It doesn't mean anything. So yeah, no people, one's buying the book because you're so handsome. Well, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. He's very handsome. It's very handsome. <laughs> it's radio. It's radio. I want. Right. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, nobody knows. It's. I'm not a persona. I wasn't a famous person. There's nobody that's, you know, seeing the person on this and being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is about blah, blah, blah. So... So, I mean, once you kind of got to the end, then you might think, oh, that was kind of a cool picture or something like that. But so we wanted just a much more stylized cover. So then they just took it and they did amazing stuff. So they had this beautiful uh, door and a child sitting in front of the door. And if you ever get a chance to see it, in the same way the uh, famous book Three Cups of Tea had a beautiful cover, this had just a beautiful cover. I might be dating myself with these references here. But, um, of course, then I found out much later that the door, which is this gorgeous sort of turquoise color, in real life is actually yellow, and they Photoshop that. And then people are always like, oh, who's this little boy sitting there? And, you know, I'm going out and talking to people and, you know, giving sort of talks about this book, and I'm always like, oh, you know, that boy is really a boy that just meant, you know, is so special. To, I don't know. It's just a stock photo. <laughs> like, a, like a child actor. <laughs> That's it. It's literally oh like a stock photo oh, no. of this kid. So I don't know who that kid is. And you've been asked about this child everywhere. I oh. have. I've learned to lie less. Oh. And, uh, He's probably like from Connecticut. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly yeah, right. He's probably Connecticut wearing like some Nepalese hat. <laughs> so I end up, I got caught in that lie at one point. So I stopped telling that lie. The other lie that I got caught in much more dramatically was giving a talk to, you know, five or six hundred people. This book, um, we are incredibly fortunate with how this book did it. Um, it was made into like a common read for, you know, universities and things like that. So I got a chance to go out and talk with universities, uh, students at universities. And um, at one of these things, there was sort of like uh, an evening event at the art center or something like that. And, um, and somebody stood up and asked a question, which I got fairly commonly, which was, you know, how's your Nepalese? How did you communicate with the children? Do you speak Nepalese? Did you speak Nepalese? And so the easy answer, you know, when you're in like Massachusetts is, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> Nepalese, sure. Of course, you know, of course yeah. I speak Never Nepalese. Yes. But a language you don't <laughs> Well, know. thank you so much, Sherry, for filling me on this now. <laughs> oh, so, uh, so I said yes. And then the next question was a woman behind the back, oh, and you already know, right? Stands God. up and she's just asking me in Nepalese this long, drawn out question. And everybody's like kind of giggling because they don't know what she's <laughs> saying. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, right. so yeah. that, I got caught in a lie once, and that was sort of the last time I, I think I got caught in a lie. You know, picking up on something you said about the, the title, it seems like another thing you, you don't like about it is that it makes everything seem very grandiose, mm-hmm. like this big hero's journey. Right. Do you not see yourself like a hero? Because the book is full of heroic things. Yeah, and it, that's a funny way to say it because, you know, I can't imagine, you know, the only answer to that question is like, oh, me, I'm no, the real heroes are, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and But it's true, like, and I try to make this um, really clear from page one. So um, so something about the editing process um, is that I, I thought the book was really done. I worked with an agent, an editor, you know, so we really thought the book was in absolutely perfect condition. And then when the editor at HarperCollins took it, um, you know, she read it, she, you know, had really liked it already, the, the proposal. We went to lunch, we talked, um, this is about three weeks after she got it. And she said, you know, I'm going to, I'd like to make some cuts. And I'm like, uh, of course. But I was like, oh, because I worked on it so much. I'm like, so, you know, what do you want to cut? I'm thinking paragraph here and there. And even that would be hard. She's like, I'm, I'm going to cut the first 40 pages of the book. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. Gosh, so and it was so brutal, right? Because I'd worked so much. I knew it was good. But she was really right. And, um, and the reason was that I spent the first 40 pages trying to set up this character. So this kind of gets to the point of, you know, when you talk about the heroic things done in the book, it's that I wanted to make it clear, really, really crystal clear that this was, in the same way I didn't like the title, this was not me. It's not, I never went out there to do it. I didn't want to volunteer. I make it crystal clear in the book, and anybody who reads it knows that this is the big joke, 
the so basically, I took those four. They, she said, "You have forty pages. You you can you're going to condense that down to say, I'll give you two pages to try to get across the character that you are." <sighs> and so we actually came up with something. Um, I, th- I find writing pretty hard, but um, but we came across with something. Came up with something pretty good, which was. The opening scene is basically me sitting in a bar, which actually really happened, telling a girl that I was trying to date that I was going to go off and volunteer in a in a village in Nepal with orphans purely to try to get her to go out with me. You know, I mean, this was the sole reason that I like I went out to volunteer with orphans in Nepal purely as a pickup line. It turned out to be a phenomenal it's a scheme that you had a, or puppies, yeah. <laughs> it's a scheme you made in a bar is what you're saying. It, and it's a brilliant one. And it's <laughs> uh it's highly effective. I got married out of it and everything else. But um but I to sort of try to instead of kind of coming at it as like um, with the sort of the hero question, I tried to sort of set myself up as much as possible in a very realistic way and be completely honest about my intentions because I think that there's if I'm if I'm in this boat, I imagine there's other people in this boat too, and I'm really open about this when I go and speak at schools. You know, people tell you you should volunteer for the right reasons and everything, and I don't believe in that at all. I think that you should volunteer because if you volunteer for the you know the right reasons, it'll take you forever to get out there, right? So you're like because you're being told that unless you're volunteering for these very altruistic reasons, you shouldn't be doing it, which is crazy. You should volunteer to get something on your resume because the people you're going to be helping, they don't care why you're coming out there. So they would rather have twenty motivated people coming out there than the one person that is actually genuinely altruistic, right? So it just feels to me like a numbers game. You know, the more people that you can. Um, convinced to volunteer for their own reasons, their own motivations, the more people you have going out and helping in the world. And I sort of, you know, you can kind of make a case. Anyway, so all that is to say that I'm extremely open about my, um, I don't want to say nefarious is too strong a word, but just sort of like my motivations, which were not, um, you know, very high-minded motivations. So when all these great things happen, I really tried um, to do a couple things in this book. One is I tried to paint um, a very realistic picture of what I experienced, and I was really lucky because it came from a blog. So uh, I was able to just kind of take the blog entries. So I wasn't trying to recreate it years later with memory fuzzy and all that kind of stuff. Everything that I wrote, I had kind of taken notes on very, you know, just in the moment. So that was sort of number one. I wanted to make sure that it was real and genuine and everything else. But the second thing was I wanted to sort of bring people along so that they could see why each step led to the next step. So so when we think about sort of like the heroic things that are done in this book, and I get it, I get sort of like looking at it from the outside and be like, wow, you know, Connor kind of found these kids and rescued these kids. That's true. But it, there was never a moment where I took... Um, and I want to be careful because I don't want to sort of seem overly modest and like an idiot here. But, you know, there was a moment where I like found these like seven kids and I only found them because I kind of stumbled onto them. And when you find kids that you kind of stumble onto, of course, you're going to, you know, feed them. You're not going to because I was already about them. Yes, you care. children. That's it. You care about them. They're children. But then when sort of push came to shove, the revolution broke out and I ended up flying back to America because everybody kind of left the country, got very dangerous. When I was coming, I wasn't planning on making a life out of this. I kind of thought, oh, I did my volunteering. It was really cool. I feel like I did something cool. It's a cool resume builder, all that kind of stuff. And I had a great experience. Um, But the reason I came back was because these seven kids disappeared. And it wasn't like I was like, oh, now I can't wait to go do this thing. It was more... If I don't go find them, nobody's going to go find them. And these were kids that I'd gotten to know over the course of four months. And, you know, when you you kind of hear that kind of thing all the time. But, like, if it's, you know, if it's you working with, you know, a bunch of kids for, like, four months, that's a pretty long time. And then all of a sudden you hear they're kidnapped and you know nobody else is going to try to find them. I can't imagine people wouldn't try to go find them. So that's kind of what I did. I, I came back. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a mortgage. I wasn't starting another job. Like, I was put in a very, very good position where I had some freedom. So I just went back and did all this stuff. But that's why it never, uh, and I want to sort of try, I'm making the case because I think when people just sort of say like, oh, what I did wasn't very heroic, I get that it reads that way, but there was never a moment where I felt like I was really doing something where I was really sacrificing something tremendous for somebody else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I I, I hear you, and I, I think what's really interesting is that here at Stern in particular, I think something that is espoused by administrators and professors certainly is that, um, you know, touch one life, make one change, and that will make you a hero and that will make you courageous. And I'm wondering, is that sort of 
the old and and you touch seven lives. You know, you you didn't even just touch one, and um, obviously many more on top of that. But is that sort of the lesson here for Sternies or future Sternies or potential? Yeah, I think that's a great point because. Um, you know, it's there's. I mean, it's kind of corny, but it's that that old sort of adage about the dad and the kid walking on the beach, and like there's all the starfish on the beach, and the son throws like one of the starfish back, and the dad's like, "All right, you got a big job. There's like a million starfish. It doesn't really make a huge difference." And he's like, "It made a difference to that starfish, you know." So, what a sweet boy. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like it's probably flung in the wrong direction. <laughs> but that's the point, right? Is that. Um, you know, I didn't sort of really get that until I had kids myself. And so, you know, I kind of always thought of it as, um, oh, yeah, I'm kind of doing a thing and I'm kind of helping some kids. And I kind of thought about it in very generic terms. And now that I have kids, I have a son that just turned eight, Finn, and I have a daughter that will turn six uh, next month, Lucy. And now I imagine it as them, you know, and I imagine sort of like if somebody, if Lucy had disappeared, and I knew there was an organization out there. And that organization was, because there's a lot of times people say, oh, you must love this work. I'm like, I don't love this work. I love the outcome of the work, but this work is tiring. You know, it's just tiring all the time. But I love what it does. And so um, if every time that I think, you know what, I'm not sure that I really want to keep doing this and everything else, I always think, well, so what if Lucy had been lost? And I found out that there was an organization that was saving kids like Lucy. And then I found out that the person running it was just tired and they wanted to give up on this work and everything else, I would crawl to them and say, listen, I totally get that, but could you just find Lucy? Uh, and then one, one more, more yeah. just one more. And then, and again, it's not to be trite and it's not to sort of be like um, cliched or anything like that. It's just knowing now what it feels like to have a child that you care so deeply about. So whenever we want to sort of stop, I always think, man, there's a parent out there. Like this kid is like actually somebody's like Lucy. And so that kind of what, you know, is what gets us going. And so I think that, you know, with us, it's the number of people that you're helping. It just doesn't make any, the number just doesn't make any difference because we're all only sort of in our own minds. And I don't want to get sort of like too ethereal about it, but you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the idea that I always have about this, which is, yeah, if you can help one person, not in any kind of corny or cliched way, like, that's enormous because imagine if somebody was helping you. Well, it's also that pay it forward mentality. It's that network, you know, that stereotypical drawing that you see that one person branches out to four, branches out to 16, you know, just it grows exponentially. And yep. I'm sure that's something that you're hoping, you know, is an impact of, it, of your work. Well, it's a great point because it's already happening in Nepal for us. And I think we're very lucky. The kids that we're helping, um, just because it's ingrained in the culture of the organization that we help them through, they are kind of going back to the village and they're doing great things. And it actually really speaks to the culture of Stern. And it's something that, as you remember from the first days of launch, our orientation program, um, it's something that we always talk about, right? Because it's such an easy thing to say like, oh, the best thing about this organization or school is the people. And everybody will kind of say that. But it's different. Um, there's something different about this place. And um, and the thing that is different, I think, about Stern is this um, sense that people buy into this very quickly. You know, people buy into this helping other people very quickly. And the thing I like about it, in the same way that when I think about, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your motivation is as long as you kind of go do it, here, people, you can make a very strong business case that helping everybody else in like your study group or ever, you know, strangers in your class or anything like that is just a great business decision, right? Because here the stakes are actually very low. They feel, you know, you guys are MBA ones. I was, you know, a, an MBA student. It's the stakes at times feel very high, right? They just do. Like you guys are working, you know, yeah. your butts off and it doesn't mean else. that they are, but they feel that way. They feel that way. And that's the point is that since they feel so high, it's very hard to get out of yourself and decide that you are going to um, help other people sort of at your own, uh, to your own detriment. Do you know what sure. I mean? Like helping people, uh, you know, taking time from when you could be studying to help right. somebody else study Donating or something. your finite time to someone not yourself. <laughs> That's it. And that makes sense sort of like in theory. Everybody should help each other, but there's actually a very strong business case, which is you're going to need those to have a great reputation with those people in like five years, much more so than you need it now. So there's a good business case, but it doesn't matter if you're doing it for selfish reasons or you're doing it just because you like the community. It doesn't matter. What matters is that other people around you are getting helped. And I think at Stern, that's actually something kind of unique as far as I've seen, which is 
people really buy into this idea that you put the community first and it just helps everybody there, you know? As Dean Henry said in my macro econ class the other day, he, he came and did a guest lecture and he was saying, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, there isn't a finite amount of success in the world. You know, I can be successful and Frank can be successful and you're obviously already successful. Yeah, you're pretty so. successful. Yeah. I'll let you know when I write my book. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it just, we don't impinge on the success of others. Right. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, something that I'm, I'm sort of picking up on from what your answer was is that it seemed like you followed this like progressive path into eventually, you know, helping, getting more and more involved with these children. You know, like you, it, it sounds like you started in a bar, right? Sort of being selfish. Yeah, uh, no question about it. It's so funny when I hear people who've read the book be like, uh, yeah, you know, I started the book and, you know, it's hard to get into it because, you know, you seem like just, you know, such like an a-hole. And I'm like, well, okay, thanks, I guess. And like, but then you turned out to be nice. I'm like, you know that I wrote the book. But you're right. It's, and again, kind of one of the big things I wanted out of this book, when I read memoirs like this, and this was my problem kind of going back with the title, is that I never, it's hard for me to track sometimes when you see, um, people going off and doing these you know pretty cool things like you know they can you can kind of see where they get to you know step a and then step b and then like you just can't quite figure out how they got to step c like what changed in them that all of a sudden they're like you know what i'm gonna move to pakistan i'm like wait wh- why are you moving yeah. to pakistan and they <laughs> so what that does to me when i read it and what it does to me for the first i mean i was 29 when i went out to nepal so for the first you know 30 years of my life what that did to me was think I am not that kind of person. That is, that's not the category of person I'm in because I like reading about it. It's interesting enough, but that's not me. So one of the things I was really trying to do in this book was, and I think what you, what I hope what people get out of it is that the only skill I really had, and again, this is not uh, modesty. I think people, I think it's a compliment actually, is that I just decided I was going to keep on going. You know, like just persevering. Like I was just going to take on one more step and one more step and keep on stay there for one more day. And that was really it. I didn't have any experience really in anything else. And so I wanted to show that though. I wanted to show like, okay, that moment where you go back to Nepal and you search for these kids, there was a very specific reason because I was told that nobody else was going to do it. I tried to find other people to do it and nobody else You're would like do anybody it. anybody but me. That's right. That was yeah. it. And then even, so anytime people can point to, there's another moment in the book where I decide that I'm going to go into the mountains and search for the, the families of these kids, right? And so people would say like, oh, but that was a big step. And what my response is, I tried to get other people to do that. You don't understand. I called my uh, friends at UNICEF. I called them everywhere else. I said, listen, you should really have a project of doing this. And nobody would do it. Nobody would do it. So I thought, okay, I have a choice. Either we can, you know, we can just not do it or, but I know all these kids so well now and I know their families are in this mountainous region. So I'm just going to try to do it. But there was never a moment where I'm like, no, I, you know, grabbing the torch and be like, I got everybody, you know, stand back. I got this. You know, there was never that moment. With the cape flapping. Yeah, yeah exactly. Flapping. flapping. <laughs> An appropriately timed wind. Exactly. the cape. Exactly. Uh, I, mean, it, I mean, it's interesting because you probably are thinking, I am not the best qualified. There must be somebody else. Like, let's call the best qual. Let's call in the SEALs or something. You over know? and over again. And when you knew no one else was coming to save the children, that's when you knew, like, there's no decision here. Yeah, I think that's it. And, you know, and again, it seems um, outlandish until you're actually put in that position. But I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm strongly against guilt in these ways. And so when this is why it drives me nuts when, uh, you know, people say, again, when I get to talk to schools and sometimes teachers don't aren't crazy about me saying this, saying like, Look, go and volunteer, you know, for your resume, you know, just do it to impress people, do it for the, because, and teachers are sort of cringing because they're like, oh, it's kind of the opposite of the message that they're trying to get across. And I get that, but nobody's a mind reader. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't know if people say, like, and so what I also tell them then, unfortunately, I tell them to lie on the application for these things. I say like, (laughs) yeah, tell them that you just want to help kids because nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to want somebody who just says they're just coming you know, for their resume, right? Oh, so, right. But so this is the thing, like, I, I feel like when you're sort of doing this and when you're kind of taking, like, one step after another, you really are um, just putting yourself in a position where the, you know that nobody else is going to 
do this. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so if you can take the next step and you can kind of keep on going past the point of everybody else, so that's like my, and I'm not a terribly competitive person to be honest, but like, that's my kind of one competitive side coming out. I'm like, I'm going to, I can stay longer than everybody else can stay. And so I think that when we think <laughs> about, that's a in skill. A yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. I really would be. I would be the last. I'm like, you know what? I don't have a lot of talent, but I know I can sit. Yeah. I know I can I sit. I can stay. So I think that that's sort of where that comes in, right? And so to, to your sort of original question, when I when I go out and talk to people, I think people feel like, oh my gosh, I got to make a difference. I'm saying, look, I read the New York Times every day and I see terrible things going on around the world, but I'm not helping in those situations. And when I'm talking to kids in high school or college or something like that, I'm like, if you haven't found your thing yet, it's okay. And if you go out and volunteer and you volunteer at a homeless shelter or something like that and you just don't like it, that's okay. It's you know, There's going to be other people that come along and they really want to do that. So go, you know, wait until you find your thing. And I just happen to find my thing there, you know. Yeah. It, it also sounds like it takes a tremendous amount of willpower to really stay present, mm-hmm. you know, one day at a time. Um, just mm-hmm. to sort of accomplish those goals. So. Yeah, it, it does. And um, and that was kind of where I got lucky because Nepal is very much that kind of thing. There's not a lot of distractions. And, um, you know, one of the just the, the very strange, you know, kind of selfish things about that was that when I was out there um, in this village just volunteering for about three months, I was actually really happy. And, and I don't mean like, oh, I was just so joyful because I was like genuinely joyful. And it was so strange to me because I didn't have anything that I liked. I didn't have... TV and I didn't have food that I liked and everything else. I was eating, you know, rice and lentils twice a day. And so I was thinking, and there was, you know, only electricity a few hours a day. It was cold all the time. And I was like, why am I happy here? It doesn't make sense. And then I discovered that um, through reading, the Dalai Lama has this great book called The Art of Happiness. And he kind of works with this uh, psychologist and, you know, they, they talk about sort of like the intersection between psychology and, and faith. But but for me, it was very much, I realized that it was just because I was in a place where I wasn't coveting anything else. Do you know what I mean? So like whether wherever you are, pretty much in America, I think, you're always going to be around somewhere where you kind of just even at a very low level want the things that people around you, or you're passing restaurants or cars or something, you sure. know, something. Oh, we're good at advertising. That's it. You're good at advertising and people around you just tend to have stuff that sometimes you want. And you're right, just you're being constantly fed, you know, uh, messages that, you know, the cool people are eating at that restaurant or, you know, the slick people are sort of driving this car or whatever. So being in a little village in Nepal, there was literally nothing around me that I coveted. I didn't covet anything they had, any of their life, anything like that. And so it just lifted this thing off me. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm just so happy or so much happier being living in poverty. It wasn't that. I was, but it wasn't because of that. It was this very selfish reason of just like not being around things that I coveted all the time. Sure. Really interesting. That is really interesting. So, you know, obviously this provides a really rich backdrop for your work here with the students. Um, Obviously a lot of differences (laughs) in the the, the types of people that you're you're working with um, and the student body, but I'm wondering what are some of the primary lessons that you've brought back with you from Nepal that you'd like to give to the student body? Because you're at a business school. And there's a lot of different tracks that people are going into, you know, and, and NYU Stern is by far the best business school. And they're all looking up to you, you know. <laughs> and and ju- yes, just echoing on Sherry's question, like how do you translate that into some of like the traditional finance or consulting or any of the things that people want to do? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. Because so, you know, first, there's always a moment where you're coming back from a place like that and you think, you know what, we have everything we need here. Why are we complaining about this or this or this? And I always come back being like, I'm never going to waste, you know, food or anything like that. Ever. And then I go to like Outback Steakhouse. I'm like, I can't eat this whole blooming onion. Like, you <laughs> end up like throwing it away. So uh, I always sort of, I, I guess I, for myself, I learned early on that like wherever you are, you, that's your culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no need to sort of say like, well, in Nepal, they wouldn't care if this club offered this, you know, thing at this time or something like that, right? So. You live in your own culture, just like in Nepal, they live in their own culture and everything else. And so I think that the biggest thing for me was probably um, when I came back here, and all these things sort of just kind of go in, they kind of get imbibed. But first of all, I'm exceptionally lucky that um, that I was able to be a student here. So, you know, there's times where um, I was able to, um, especially when I first started, 
I remember on my second day of work, I was uh, I was coming in from somewhere else, and I called my wife because I was I had to fly in from somewhere or something like that. And I said, "Oh, you know," she's like, "Oh, are you heading? You know, are you in New York yet?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just driving. To, I'm driving to school now." She's like, "You know, I think they call it work now. You can't <laughs> just call it school anymore." But I'm like, "But that was the thing. Like early on, especially, I still felt so much like a." like a student like you know what I mean like even knowing that I was on the older side of the student um, age group even when I was here but you know I was I still think I understood at least a little bit about like what it what it felt right so that was sort of really useful for me but number two I think was the thing that I learned from uh, Nepal and then from living abroad in some other places too and always dealing with um, just various issues it's not that I was uh, I don't think that I'm um any better at it or anything like that. But the lesson that I learned was uh, it's really a powerful thing to just listen, right? So in my office, you know, there's times where I'm hesitant to say this sort of somewhere where it's going to get captured, but there's times where I'm just kind of like the UN, right? There's a lot of things that I actually can't influence, you know? So there's some things where I get kind of unpopular because I tend to be like the last no. I don't want anybody on my team to be like the last no, but I'm the person usually at the end of the line that says like, look, we just can't do that or we're not going to do that. And more often it's like we're choosing not to do that. And that's not usually a popular thing because MBA students have phenomenal ideas and they've worked it out and they've worked out a perfect business plan and why it should work and all. And I agree with them, but I'm like, it just won't fit in at this moment. So anyway, so I think a couple of things. I think number one is when people come in with whatever it is, however, you know, because people come into my office at times with incredibly important, huge things. You're like, wow, I can't believe you are dealing with that. And sometimes people come just with like really small things like, you know, this just sort of frustrating or I just want to change this or something. And if you can just sort of, or for me, I've um, come from a place of being very self-centered, I think, in my life. And and I think just like learning to just try to get in their shoes and be like, okay, this is really important to them. So while they're here, I'm going to make it as important to them or important to me as it is to them, you know, and just really feel that that emotion and that power that that they are feeling and I feel like that really helps because I feel like even if at the end we have to say oh we can't do that I'm not sure I can help you with that or something and that's and usually we can usually we we are able to help in some way but the times where you can't like I just want them to know that like I do understand how frustrating that is or how painful that is or something like that so I think that's kind of I think that's the biggest one and I think that the other one is just just understanding that we all come from radically different cultures too, you know, and that was kind of the biggest thing for me, which was um, things, different things are important to different people. There's people that are um, coming in here who are, you know, just worried about a job. There's people who are coming in here who are just worried about their family or friends or something. There's people who are coming in here who are just worried, you know, about their visa and everything else. And just trying to not get caught up in um, the people who are coming to my office because there's other people that are, you know, hundreds that are not coming to my office who are obviously really worried about something else. So trying to sort of like proactively like go to them and figure that out, like what is important to them? Because I think that in my life, the real the people have really made a difference and hopefully in Nepal where our team has made a difference is when they're able to go to people and kind of check in on them. You know what I mean? Like, and just sort of, you know, after we've sort of like done the big flashy things, like after we've reunited a child, um, one of the reasons that we are are so successful in what we do out in Nepal is that we always monitor the kids after the fact, right? So we always, we keep sending people. We six months later, we're going in and seeing how they're doing and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And I didn't come up with that strategy; it was somebody else that came up with it in our organization. But I kind of took it on, which was. You know, who are you when, you know, you're not sort of like the flashy guy, like, you know, because I get a chance, you know, again, at our orientation program and launch to get up in front of everybody and that's fun and it's great and all that kind of stuff. But I want to also, that's not, I mean, I, I just try to be myself there. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so when, right. you know, when there's somebody that hasn't come to me and isn't sort of like making a lot of, you know, noise about one thing or another, I also want to kind of check in with them and say like, Hey, how's that? I know that you were doing this and how's that going? So I think those are sort of like two of the big lessons that I learned from Nepal bringing here. Have it. you heard all of these questions before? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you know, in in some fashion or another, yeah. I think. But um, but no, not all, not all. It's um, it, it the fun thing for me also is just, um, you know, I always get a little nervous before I do it too because it's like 
you know, what am I, am I going to come up with something interesting or not or something like that? So it's, it's fun for me to kind of like, just like try to come up with like a new way of thinking about you it. You don't too. need to come up with anything interesting nah. for the rest of your life because <laughs> yeah. you already wrote a book. I know. Like that is, that's, I know. Yeah. you're I done. Know. That's I know. your mic drop. Way to do your work up front. Yeah, exactly. it, it really, it really did feel like that. It's so funny when I, when I was approached to write the book, I, it, because, this, uh, you know, the, I had the blog and then it came out and, um, our alumni magazine for UVA and then uh, you know got picked up by Reader's Digest and then an agent found me and said listen you gotta write this I read your blog all that kind of stuff and so we met literally in the alley between Bob's Library and Stern you know those little tables and uh, cause it was between classes cause I was like I don't have any time to talk about this and uh, and she was like so I was like first of all I can't write 300 pages of anything you know now or anytime I'm super busy and it was the first semester like you're crazy right so and she's like, no, no, you've already like written it. It's like the, the blog. I printed out the blog. Do you know how long the blog is? I'm like, I have no idea. She's like, the blog is fifteen hundred pages. Like you're <gasps> gonna be fine. Damn. Like yeah, I had no idea. Right? I had no idea. 15. But I've been writing it over the course of like a few years. So, so she's like, we have so much in here. We, we barely. Have, you were just gonna tie it all together. And then the second question was really. Um, I was like, what would be the story? You know, because like I don't want like the story of somebody that goes off and volunteers. It's just not that interesting. Like I wouldn't read a story like that. And she's like, no, no, there's a story here. Like it's basically, you know, because of the because of the way you write, you can kind of see that you're a person that you know didn't really want to do this, and that's kind of funny. And then you get out there and you do it, and then there's seven kids. You go into the mountains, you meet Liz. You know, you have like this whole love story thing throughout this. Like there's a real story here. Trust me. But that was the kind of the thing that sort of um, amazed me because like I always thought like, oh, this is like a cool little thing. But you're right. Like. I'm done now. Do you know what I mean? Like, and not because of what I did was so amazing, but like, as you can see, especially if you ever get a chance to sort of like see any of the book, this is not sort of something where I'm like, I am going to go out and I am going to build up. You know what I mean? Like, sure. It's just stuff that happens to you because you're out of this place. And just, it was really fortunate. I mean, fortunate is a very weird way to say it, but it, like, all these very, it's sort of like Sully, the, you know, the pilot, right? This guy's a great pilot, but because he was the guy in that airplane that happened to land on this thing, like, now all of a sudden there's right. a book and a movie and all I would just happen to be at the controls when this crazy thing happened, and that was it. Right. You know? that's, a, that's a great uh, comparison because he said when he landed the plane mm. in the Hudson that he had just been making regular deposits into uh, this bank of experience right. so that when he needed to make a huge withdrawal, it was all there. That's a really good way to say it. And that's know? progressive. It's just progressive, progressive, progressive. Yeah. And actually, your um, story is probably. It's like you had described, one of the only times I had heard a heroic tale be like, well, I just did the next thing that seemed obvious because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think that is why the book is so powerful and yeah. the story is so powerful. Yeah, no, thanks for saying that. Dean Grennan, I think you've said it all. And we really appreciate you being here. We knew when you came in that you're an entertainer, you are a New York Times bestselling author, and you are an academic, but we've learned so much more about you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to be with you guys. I really appreciate it. Wasn't it fun, Sherry? It was really fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was don't, fun. Don't volley <laughs> back in my direction. <laughs> oh, great. I love what you guys are doing. I think this is really cool. I was really looking forward to this all week. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you asked me. And it's, it's just fun. We don't always get a chance to sort of like go off the record in like a quiet setting, like those round table lunches and everything else where you can just like talk about stuff it doesn't have to be about like what's happening exactly in the school so it's it's awesome what you guys are doing yeah i thought it was funny you said something about off the record and i let you finish and we didn't talk about it, but it's like you know this isn't off the record i know, I know. This is, don't, don't this is actually anybody. the most I know, yeah. record. It's, on, it's on the internet it's like how could i possibly know that they were going to record this yeah. <laughs> there's no indication in that room that they were what is this thing <laughs> yeah, get this. Yeah. Yeah. okay hey thanks so much yeah, yeah thank thanks you. yeah that was awesome